You are now tuned in to Believe. Do you believe? What's up, everybody? Thank you for tapping into some Untapped Keg, our podcast about sobriety and mental health. We are part of the Believe Podcast Network. Today's show is brought to you by Sober Athletic Wear, NordVPN, and Way Skincare. But more about that later. I am one of the hosts, RJ Zimmerman, and it's our 100th episode. And I'm very excited because I took it for granted, and I was not completely sure we were going to get here, to be honest, but we made it, and it's a special show because it's somebody who, uh, my good friend, and I want to throw some flowers out there to Jennifer, and I know that she's in the chat, um, and she does Breakfast and Feelings, and she has Feeling Words mug that comes with a marker so you can find the words that your brain is looking for, but she turned me on to this guest as she has so many other people and the amount that she has turned me into a better person just through the books she's recommended the people that we talk to and everybody else like her effect on my life is so positive and um, I just want her to know that I am extremely grateful for everything that she's done and uh, you know you can reach out anytime and I'll be there for you but that's Jenny. Go to twitch.tv slash Jenny Fur. So this guest is somebody who I've been excited since I first reached out and talked to him over Twitter DMs. And he graciously said, here's a couple books. Read these books and I'll come on. And I was like, okay, I, I can do that. I can knock these out. And I, the way that these books have touched my soul and helped me to not just be a better person, but be a better parent, be more open in my mental health and be more, I guess, aware of the things that I do throughout the day and make some positive changes. Um, you know, our, our guest is author and founder of Train to Be Clutch, a business and life consultancy through which he works with top performers all over the world from many different professions. Joshua Metcalf. How are you doing this morning, Joshua? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Excited to be here and get to uh, chat with you. I, Before we get too far into it, I'm going to have an ad. But one thing that I do want to say is I'm not just tossing these flowers because you're on. Like I truly un- honestly mean this. So uh, yeah, this is episode 100. We're going to have it's going to be, we are going to get deep. I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be energetic and it's going to be motivating conversations and just talking with you before. Like, yes, I love listening to people who are passionate and your passion comes through in your writing, which I think is not something you always get in, especially books that are geared towards this mindset change, right? Like a lot of them are kind of dull and boring, but the, I did not really slog through any of these books. I just consumed them. And uh, 
I really appreciate it. So <laughs> thank you. I'm, I'm grateful to hear that. I, I do my best to write books for people that hate to read. And <laughs> I try and write in a way that actually makes people want to stay with it. And um, I kind of have learned in the same way that you have, mm -hmm. that there's a lot of people that have written books that uh, I, I'm not sure why they were writing them. But when I read them, I have a very hard time getting past page five, 10, 20. And so I've never wanted to, to write in that way. So I'm grateful <laughs> to hear that that's the impact. Uh, I, it, it truly is. And uh, I, I'm really glad that when you're writing it, you had a write this book for RJ Zimmerman, like right there. So, <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into our conversation, let's hear from our friends over at Sober Athletic Wear. Alcohol, drugs, food, sex, gambling, shopping, pornography, gaming, and even social media are self-medicating tools we use to escape life's traumas, depression, and anxieties. Sober Athletic Wear's mission is to destigmatize addiction, mental health, and the negative stigma surrounding the word sober. If you have a heart for dealing with people with mental health and addiction, show your support by repping the sober brand. Visit SoberAthleticWear.com to browse Soberware and also watch a clip, a clip from our Untapped Keg podcast featuring Troy Colmer, founder of Sober Athletic Wear, as he shares his story of addiction and why he started sober. Remember, we are all getting sober from something. <sighs> all right, Joshua. Now we get to have our conversation and it won't be interrupted too much. So <laughs> here's, here's kind of where I would love to start. All right. I, so I have this one right here, pound the stone. And yeah. when I started reading it, I was like, okay, it's about a high school kid who is going through these changes. Like we've all been there. Like, uh, you know, let's, we all do need the change and everything, but the more, you get into it, the more you realize the life lessons that are in the small print, right? So can you describe pound the stone, the, not the message necessarily that you're trying to get out, but like there's so much of life around it. So how were you able to capture that feeling of, knowing that you need growth and being able to to find it and get through to hard-headed people such as myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it, it probably has to do with when you're reading that introduction about uh, the, the challenges and self-medication. Um, I, I think I struggle with, with most of the things on that list. And um, I've, I've really tried from the very beginning to be really uh, authentically vulnerable, transparent about my life, my struggles, my journey. Um, I don't regurgitate shit that I read in books. I try and um, share authentically from what I've done, uh, the experiences I've had. Um, when I first started out uh, at Duke and I got to work with our sports psychologist there and realized that I was a huge head case. And that I needed help 
Um, and didn't even understand it completely at the time, but I, I watched as I went from being the last pick on the team to finishing second in points to the best player in the country at Duke. And, um, and so really that's all I've tried to do is either, um, create, write, um, become what I wish that I would have had whenever mm-hmm. I was growing up, um, create the tools that I wish that I would have had and share my story and struggles. And a lot of the reason why I wrote Pound the Stone is because uh, that's not my most popular book. It's not the most famous book. The most famous book is Chop Wood, Carry Water. And I love Chop Wood, Carry Water. And it's it's changed my life in, in many different ways. Some of them good, some of them more challenging. Um, but it, it completely changed my life. And But what I noticed is, is that it's, in my opinion, um, and I wrestle back and forth with this often, it's just very level one. It's very surface level. Um, it's it's the go-to book in sports psychology and gets used in tons of sales organization because it's so simple. Now, simple doesn't mean easy, mm-hmm. but it's very simple. And part of my frustration with that book is that people stop there. And you know they don't realize that it's the fourth book that I wrote. It wasn't the first book that I wrote. And what I really wanted to do with Pound the Stone is I wanted to get into the, the real, real, the, the things that are below the surface at a heart level and dealing with heart posture and authentic vulnerability and, um, and just like just all the, the really difficult life stuff that happens. Mm-hmm. And in Chop Wood, we, we were able to... Um, somehow in such a simplistic short story um, really explain things to people in a way that can kind of create this illusion that it's going to be easy and it's going to be smooth and it's going to happen very quickly. And with Pound the Stone, what I really wanted to do is deal with stuff like suicidal ideation um, and depression and the the demons and the the real shit that people have to navigate on a daily basis because that's what I've had to deal with my my whole life after you know whenever I was uh nine my baby brother drowned I was the one that pulled him out of the pool um most likely got uh manic depression from PTSD um you know was uh, found out at 32 that I was on the autism spectrum and dealt my whole life without understanding why it was so hard for me to um, have normal social, uh, interactions. Um, and so I just really wanted to deal with like the real stuff. And I feel like so many people in my industry, they write stuff and they say stuff that makes people feel good mm-hmm. and what they want to hear. And they don't deal with like the, the real shit. And that's, was really my focus in that book. And that's why it's my favorite uh, book out of the nine that I've written. And I've, I've heard you say that. Um, and that's why I wanted to start with Pound the Stone, because I know that it's your favorite. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot in the book and there's a lot to take away from it. Um, you know, one thing that you talk about is like mental health. And uh, right now that answer, like you talked about your own mental health and things that you've gone through and you, didn't know that you had to deal with stuff till uh, the sports psychologist in college and didn't know, you know, why socially, you know, you 
your relationships were not always 100%. Like, I think now people are starting to voice, and I think that there were people, but they were just on the, the fringes before, right? People are starting to voice that mental health isn't just depression, isn't just mania, isn't just addiction, isn't just, you know, it's not these little things. It, it's literally our entire lives. It's all of us. And the fact that you're able to take that and put that onto the pages of pound my stone or pound the stone, I'm sorry, as you know, honestly, it's freeing. It is reading it like the heart posture you're talking about and like that growth mindset. Like it's just knowing that there's other people that understand like, and then you begin to understand, like I need to, look at things from a whole health perspective and not just physically, I'm fine. I'm taking care of myself. I'm doing all this and it's good. But like one of your, well, sorry to interrupt, sorry to interrupt you. I don't want to miss this point because I think that the other thing that happens is like, and this is what happened with chop wood a lot is that how about, well, my performance is great. I'm killing it with my performance. Yes. I'm yes. crushing it. I'm crushing these goals. I'm crushing all everybody's expectations. I'm killing it. And I'm dying inside. Yeah. That that That's more of that motivation as well of like, sh- sure, I can help people perform better, but I, I know better than anybody. I've outperformed every expectation I've ever had on me my entire life. And have dealt with stuff that is so dark, it's not even funny. And it usually comes on the other side of having crushed some performance expectation. And I think that, let's go there, because I love what you said there. And, you know, one thing that you say is burning your goals. So, yeah. and yet that has to do with the performance. And this, the, it's so tied into the messages in Pound the Stone, but... um when you say burn your goals, what what do you you know mean by that process? Because I've I've also taken that and implemented it into this podcast. Yeah. Um, so it's funny because burn your goals is the first book that I wrote, um, and oftentimes I get people that think that um, well, he doesn't really mean that you should burn your goals. I'm like. Yeah, no, I, I actually do. <laughs> well, no, you should you should still set goals though, right? And I'm like, no, I, I don't think that you should set goals. I think that we should live a mission-driven life. Um, I think that goals actually let people off the hook. I think they allow them to shirk responsibility because when you set these goals, these arbitrary-based outcome goals, they're always dependent on factors that are outside of your control. And so... Let's take, you know, Mother Teresa's mission was to serve the needs of the sick and the dying. No one can ever stop you from serving the needs of the sick and the dying. You can always do that. In prison, you can still serve the needs of the sick and the dying. Like there's going to be options to to live out that mission. Nobody can stop you from that. But a lot of times somebody that has maybe that type of mission or passion in their heart, mm-hmm. somebody's going to come along and say, "Oh, well, your goal needs to be for you to become a doctor." Well, guess what? There's a lot of things along the way where you may not have enough money, you may not be quote unquote qualified. You may not pass certain tests. You may have people tell you that you're disqualified. You may have all these different things that can happen that keep you 
from uh, doing what you say that you want to do, which is just serve the needs of the sick and the dying. And so why would we, you know, focus on something that's outside of our control instead of just focusing on something that's 100% controllable? Um, And so, you know, we talk about, um, let's focus instead of goals, let's focus on commitments and controllables. So what can I do inside of my 86,400 seconds every single day to close the gap between where I'm at and where I want to be? What what do I need to sacrifice inside of my 24 hours a day to close the gap between where I'm at and where I want to be? Um, who I am, who I want to become. And then, um, so that's commitments and controllables. Did I do it or did I not? <laughs> um, 100% <laughs> controllable. Yeah. At the end of the day, you're the only person. Did you do what you committed to doing? Yes or no? I don't care about your excuses. I don't care what came up. Did you do what you committed to doing? Did you sacrifice what you committed to sacrificing? Um, that's a hard conversation to have. We love blame. We love to blame oh, the government. It is. We addicting. love to blame. <laughs> oh, it's the most addicting. We love yes. to blame the government. We love to blame our friends, our mm-hmm. parents, our mm-hmm. significant others, uh, the the boogeyman down the street. Uh, we love to blame China. We love to blame everyone, and we hate to actually look in the mirror and take responsibility for what we have control over. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, the, and the scary thing is we have control over very little. It's very, very small what we actually have control over. Um, so we say focus on commitments and controllables. And then the other thing is true mental toughness. And so one of the issues with performance, in my opinion, is that so often people will sacrifice what truly matters. And what I mean by truly matters is what will matter on your deathbed will sacrifice what truly matters in the process of, in the, in the search of uh, the illusion of, of winning that like they, they think like, Oh, well maybe I can, if I win, then it's all worth it. Well, all of the, you know, yeah, I was a jerk to this person. I treated these people so poorly. I was such a, but I got, I got to my goal. Mm -hmm. Well, then what happens when you, when you, don't get there. But even what happens when you do get there and then you become that type of person that it's like, okay, so on your deathbed, that, that trophy is really going to matter. That little bit extra money is really going to matter on your deathbed. Um, Francis Chan said our greatest fear in life should not be of failure. Our greatest fear should be of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. And so the way we define true mental toughness is having a great attitude, giving your very, very best, treating people really, really well, and having unconditional gratitude, regardless of your circumstances. And the thing is, is that if you focus on true mental toughness, the only thing you can do is win. Because if you lose, it becomes a greater opportunity to develop more true mental toughness. The tougher your circumstances, the greater the opportunity to develop true mental toughness. Also, John Wooden said that he's never found somebody that can describe for him something that you can do better than your best. So we've already said, you know, give your very, very best. Also, while adding these other characteristics in that are really important because everyone wants people on their team, whatever that is, in yes. sports and life and business, who embody the characteristics of true mental toughness. So focus on true mental toughness, focus on your mission and your controllables, and then let the results take care of themselves. The results are going to be pretty close to what they should be. That's, that's it. Um, 
John Wooden never talked about winning. One more than anybody else. Never talked about winning to his team. He said that if we control the process, if we focus on the things that are inside of our control, the results will be pretty close to what they should be. And that's it. Sometimes there's going to be people that are better than us. Sometimes there's going to be businesses that are better than us. Sometimes there's going to be podcast hosts that are better than us. There's so (laughs) many things. There's going to be other people that write better. There's going to be other people that speak better. There's going to be other people that uh, are a better fit for somebody that you love and are in love with. Like it just, there are certain things that are outside of our control. Um, And why should we make ourselves miserable in the process of trying to control all this stuff that's outside of our control? There's a lot to digest there. I, I love that. Like, so, you know, true mental toughness, it's learning, right? I mean, just learn, take everything that's happening and learning. And if you learn from losing, you're not losing. Right. You're gaining something. And the, the fact that you said that about John Wooden and like the more that I learn about John Wooden, the more I like he he's on in the upper echelon of leaders. Right. Like yeah. the fact that he never talked about winning is something that you could talk to people and they wouldn't believe you because of how successful right. he was. Yeah. And it's it's taking we make things more complicated than they need to be, right? That's kind of like our human. Oh, without a doubt. That's, yeah. that's, that's something that we do as humans is we make things way more complicated than they need to be. So just simplifying everything. And one thing that you say upon the stone that I love and I have taken it um, and I've implemented it in my life, like as a father, as a, you know, everything is easy things to do mean they're also easy not to do. And, you know, focusing on those easy things that you can control and doing them, like you said, the best that you can, it really turns what you're doing, just simple tasks and is like, no, I could, I could put a little bit more effort in here. Like my, you know, my mind is, is running a little bit. And that's something that I struggle with because, you know, I have, I have pretty severe ADHD that I manifested itself when my second child was born. And I'd always mm-hmm. had it, but I mean, it, it, the stress that I had at that time really took it to another level. So I went in and I got help and I, I got a new medication that it has taken, I've never concentrated like this in my life. I didn't even know it was wow. possible. Yeah. Like I've, I can edit a video and it, it takes me a long time because I'm still new and learning and that's okay. And I can also go and clean the house in the same day. I didn't. Yeah. I thought that it was one or the other, honestly. That's yeah. But it's just knowing that I could be better. So what can I control yep. that is easy that I could be like, well, I'm not gonna do that today. But why am I not gonna do it today? You know, why wasn't I making the phone call for that psychiatry appointment? Why wasn't I, you know, reading books to my kids? Why wasn't mm-hmm. I sitting on the floor and playing with them? Why you know, why wasn't I cooking dinner every night? That's these are very easy things that honestly have brought more joy and betterment yeah. to my life than, you know, when I was doing a job that sure, I loved the job, but what was it bringing me mentally? It was bringing me a lot of burnout. It was bringing me a lot yeah. of 
a lot of stress. So, you know, I was a lineman uh, for utility company. So I worked on high voltage power lines mm-hmm. and you're on call 24 seven. And my ego got to the point. It was just two of us in a district that's supposed to have five. So we wow. had a lot of calls coming in and, uh, we took a lot of pride in that we didn't, we weren't going to ask for help. We didn't want help. And so I, I ended up burning myself out taking calls. I think for the year and a half that I was there, I think that, uh, I only had two weekends that I didn't take a call. And that was because I was out of town. Like that's just, and I didn't know it. I was burned out for almost two years after I put myself through that. And then just going through some, you know, other things that, why did I do that? The money was great. Yeah. It, goals. I, I thought I'd get this career. I thought I'd get my journeyman card. I can live life. You know, everything was going to take care of itself at that point. I'll be able to yeah. take care of my family and have extra. But I was unfulfilled. And didn't know it. And so I'd go home. I'd go on autopilot mode. That's how I was living. And so a lot of times we can feel that a positive change is needed, right? Like we feel it in our heart. We feel it right here. And for me, it got up to the point where it was like almost like a lump in my throat that I, something Uh, wasn't right with myself. Like, and it wasn't right with my situation and I didn't know what it was. And, you know, so my family and I made a change and we moved across the country and that for my mental health has been just, uh, it's been incredible. I did not know that I knew deep down, but I wasn't being honest with myself looking in the mirror. Like yeah. you said, you, we know when a change is needed. We just don't yeah. want to be honest. Yeah. So no, <laughs> that it's, Doing those easy things and knowing that they're also not easy to do and doing them your best, they just, it it increases the value that you see in your life so much more than you can imagine when you do it regularly. Yeah. The other, the other line I think that's in Found the Stone is that oftentimes we get caught up seeking the remarkable instead of doing the unremarkable with remarkable consistency. And most of the time, if you look at people that, you admire and whatever area it is, it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of what you were talking about that. It, it's not anything, you know, crazy that they're doing. It's just that they do the simple things with remarkable consistency um, every single time and doing, doing that, the, the unremarkable really, really well, really, really consistently. And when you do that, it's, it's amazing. Then what happens, you know, I, I like to say dream big, um, execute small and be faithful with small think small um it's very easy to dream really big but then do do nothing about that or or try and do like one thing i i think is interesting and i've seen this happen with a lot of my friends um is that they they dream big but then what they do is they come up with these elaborate schemes let's call them you know and it can be a scheme it can be a dream whatever it is but in doing so that again lets them off the hook because they could just do the simple thing every single day the small thing over and over and over and over again 
No, let's do this super huge thing Mm -hmm. that's most likely going to fail. But then we can be like, well, but but I tried. Yeah, I gave it the old college try. (laughs) Yeah, like kind of. Like, why didn't you just post on social media every single day? Well, you know, I forget. I I forget to do that. It's Yeah, but it's 100% controllable and it's really easy. Yeah, but you know, I've come up with this this elaborate thing over here that I can do. Yeah. And, and maybe that thing will work. Uh, but why don't you just do the unremarkable thing with remarkable consistency? Like, why don't you just do the simple thing, the easy thing over and over and over and over and over again? You ever listen to an NBA coach in, in the huddles? Um, yeah, I have actually. It, it's they like don't on say the they don't and stuff. Yeah, like they they don't say stuff that's crazy. Yeah, it's like, hey, we got to hustle. We got to get back on defense. I need you to box out. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's stuff that you learned when you were seven years old. Set your feet, right? Like, <laughs> like I mean, it's tough. I mean, <laughs> it's and you're sitting there and you're like, I can teach that. Like, I you guys get paid millions of dollars to mm-hmm. coach, and this is what you're. Co- but guess what? Like I was on staff with UCLA women's basketball for seven years as the director of mental training. So I've been very exposed to, um, to John Wooden. And so it was always funny because sometimes I have this, this bad habit, I would call it of, I, I don't like repeating myself. Like if I'm in a speaking engagement or something like this, I'll say a quote one time and think that, well, I don't want to repeat myself because I've, ar- I've already said that. But man, you go and you watch almost any high-level practice and the coach is going to say the same thing 50 or 100 times over hmm. and over and over and over again. And it's usually really basic stuff. But it's it that mastery of those basics that then all of a sudden the cool stuff can happen down the road. You can shift out of that down the road, but you have to master those fundamentals you have to master the basics my dad didn't know anything about sports he never played sports he grew up in a trailer park had to duct tape his trailer together really tough childhood um and my brother and i were both freak athletes um and so but what my dad would tell us is do the basics do the basics (laughs) this is what he would yell at (laughs) us and it was funny if somebody that knew nothing about sports but yet, like if you look at a basketball game, what wins basketball games, what wins close games, free throws and layups. Yep. Free throws and layups. Virtually every single close game that you will see in the NCAA tournament will be decided based upon free throws and layups. The most basic thing in basketball. And that's something, so to take it to the NFL, and I'm a big Packers fan, so like, I grew up in Wisconsin, uh, so it's a it's a religion there. So if people ask me, oh, about I, I know fans, my business partner is from Appleton. So <laughs> okay, got season so tickets. There. I grew up in Kiwani, which is just east of there, like Green yep. Bay area. So, like, <laughs> it's funny you say that. It's people ask me if I'm a Packers fan. I say, yeah, I'm religious, and they kind yeah. of look at me, and I'm like, no, you don't understand unless you're there. But their defense, when they have championship level defense. It's because people are staying home. So like playing 
championship-level defense, which you see the Wisconsin Badgers do, people on the backside stay home, and when they pursue, they don't give up the gaps, right? When they're playing poor defense, it's because their defensive ends are crashing down to get that quarterback, and it allows that edge to be had. And then it's like, well, what's going on? But like, that's the little things that we're talking about. Yeah. And that's something that you know somebody who played at a very low level can see on TV yeah. because we've been exposed to it. But it's those little things, right? And I mean, I was in of obviously, you know, line work. It's dangerous. Yeah. And uh, that's something that we also have to remember is doing those little things. Like something as simple as putting cones out. So if we go up and we're working on energized conductors, we have a different set of cones that go out there green so that people know, wait, there's green cones out. So we have orange for traffic control and then we have green ones. So they're like, why? That's weird. Why is there green? And that's so that everybody knows that truck could be energized if something goes wrong. So don't go near it. If we don't put those cones out, which is a simple thing, and we, we do forget, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Somebody, it's life or death. Just something as yeah. simple as that. Because you, it is very easy to forget that that's go, that could happen. And we, yeah. things happen behind you, and you plan for the worst and hope for the best. And that's part of doing those little things is so you can, and here's another quote that I love, especially being a lineman, Sleep through the storms. Yeah. Because, I mean, when the storms came, I would hear stories from old linemen. Like, they would wake up and they'd be awake waiting for that phone to ring. They know that phone is going to ring. But honestly, from the time that I started till I left, I slept like a baby. And the reason is, I am not going to stop that phone from ringing. Whether I'm up or I'm sleeping... That phone's going to ring. That phone's going to ring. Yeah. It reminds, so it reminds me of, um, you know, the, there was this experiment that was done by these nine Michigan hospitals, um, back in 2004 where, um, you know, in 2000s, we were at the height of innovation and so many technological advancements and science and technology. And, um, this these these hospitals they experimented with this new um system and it ended up saving uh i think it was 1500 lives it reduced infection rates by 66 percent um and it saved about uh 15 million dollars in less than uh, a year and what it was was it was just a simple checklist uh, of things that you had to do every single time before entering the operating room. And the number one thing of the five simple things was wash your hands. And, you know, it was in, I think it was like 1876 that we figured out that washing of hands helped eliminate the spread of germs. And yet in 2004, we had this type of impact from doing mm-hmm. something so simple because again just because it's easy to do that means it's easy not to do and just because we know to do it doesn't mean that we do it and just because we know to do it doesn't mean that we do it every single time and so so much of chop wood carry water pound the stone is um, what are those simple little things and how do you create 
a system where you do those things every single time because that's where that power is that once again we're often caught up in seeking the 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 the, the remarkable but it's just doing the remarkable with um they're unremarkable with remarkable consistency and it's the same thing that like we we oftentimes we think that that one thing is going to change everything well mm-hmm. if i could just get this you know this person on my podcast if i could just get this uh job if i could just get this opportunity if i could just get the money for my foundation or for my my uh startup if i could just get a, a starting spot on a team if i could just get a scholarship one of my most interesting things to me um you know i've i've gotten to work with virtually every major institution um and especially their their different sports teams at them and i always found it so fascinating you'd get to some place um i'll just use duke cuz i i played there and i i've worked with them and you get to you get to duke and i remember being there with one of the sports programs and saying I can see that you all are miserable. Wasn't there a time in your life whenever you were 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old that you thought if I could just get to a place like Duke everything will be like I could not have a bad day. If I got a scholarship <laughs> to play at a school like Duke, mm-hmm. I could not have a bad day. If I just get to the NBA, if i just get to the nfl if i could just become the ceo if i could just become the head coach then there's i would bullshit complete fucking bullshit and but that's the game that we play is that oh if i could just get there then then everything if that one thing would happen but the truth is that that one thing isn't really going to change much at all And often times what it can do is what I realized when Chop Wood went viral and all of a sudden I realized at 32 that I never had to work another day in my life. Uh oh, now all of a sudden I realized I'm really good at climbing mountains. I'm really good when I just have to put my head down and work and go and go and go that there's very few people that can stay with me. That I can focus, I can grind harder, I can do things that don't make sense to people. When I just had to stop and i didn't have to do anything when i stepped off the merry go round i was like oh shit i've been able to bury a lot of stuff through grinding i've been able to not deal with a lot of the real stuff going on internally because i've just kept my head down i've just kept climbing i've just kept doing things that everybody else and people look around and they're like oh my god it's so incredible you've been able to but then when you stop and you get still mhm and that stuff starts coming up it's like oh yeah now all of a sudden my suicidal ideation is worse than it's ever been my manic depression is worse than it's ever been and i have all the trappings that most people would say make a ridiculously successful life it just it, it it's weird it doesn't fill that hole that we have that right. we're trying to fill and you know what you're talking about here is sobriety i mean 
that's what we do when we get sober. We have been keeping our hands, our heads down, right? And we're putting it into something. And yeah. a lot of times we take it, we put it into something else. So like I took mine and I put my head down and I put it into my career. Put it, I got mm-hmm. sober right before I came alignment. Put it into that. And then all of a sudden I get, I don't have to study so much anymore. I'm through my apprenticeship. I'm working on my own. I'm good at my job. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. But like you have time to think at work now. You're not just reacting. You're not just doing this stuff. And then it's like, wait, is this it? Is this this what I'm going to be doing for the next 40 years? Like, that's, we get raised, and I, I, I want to go into this, um, and then Jennifer has a question for you, but um, I think this is a really good segue. We're raised in a culture that shames or guilts emotions. And we don't, we don't honestly learn why we feel an emotion, what's there, even like going through grief, like you did at nine years old, like we make people uncomfortable when we're dealing with our emotions and they in turn are like, stop it. No, you can't do that because that's just not what adults do. Like you need to grow up and it, so I've talked about this too before, like it's it's toxic masculinity, but it wasn't just done to men. Like, yes, women were allowed to feel, but they weren't allowed to feel to the full extent. They were only allowed to feel to a certain point. So like culture, and especially people our age, like we were raised to bury a lot. And we mm-hmm. watched that toxic work ethic of our parents and then put everything into working hard and getting everything for us that they didn't have or, you know, and that was going to be great. It it reminds me of that Bruce Lee quote. Don't give your children everything that you never had. Teach them everything that you wish you knew. And Mm -hmm. like, it's really good. That's I'm starting to come to terms with the fact that like, I I've I'm a 13 year old when it comes to emotions, I'm better now, but before Mm -hmm. the podcast, and even during some of the podcasts, like I, I did not deal with my emotions at all. Like it was anger was the only emotion I was allowed to feel yeah. even more than happiness. So yeah. what you're, you know, with you talking about this, how much do you think that, um, oh no, what just happened? How much do you think toxic masculinity um, had to do with that? Uh. Yeah, somewhat. I mean, listen, I think that toxic masculinity is, is very real. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I also think that there's a, a yin and, the, and a yang to everything. And so I think that soft roads create soft people. Um, and I think that, you know, when you talk about the, the flip side of, you know, um, I, I think that a lot of females are raised um, in environments that's too soft. And so then they become uh, extra dependent on a toxic male and toxic masculinity because they don't know how to deal with hard things. They don't know how to deal with um, rejection. They don't mm-hmm. know how to deal with truth. Um, I <laughs> had a very interesting situation um, with uh, an ex <laughs> at one point. Uh, my puppy is freaking out. Um, that. Um, I, I, 
she asked me if a girl was better looking than her. And I said, yes. And it was very, very, um, I think to anyone, I think they would have said yes. And she could not handle that. It, I mean, I saw her snap and freak out in a way. And it's like, what? Like, whereas like, if I, if I told you or your, you know, your wife told you that a guy's better looking than you, you'd be like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Shoulder sure. the yeah. shoulders. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, you're right. Like, awesome. Keep it moving. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's the difference in the way that we're raised. And so I think that there was such a polarization um, in the way that we were raised that I think that females oftentimes weren't taught how to be strong. And I think that men uh, weren't also taught how to be strong. <laughs> um, <laughs> they were taught how to just be angry um, and tough. Um, and keep your but yeah, I, I exactly. I, I do think that there is, yeah, toxic masculinity is 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 huge. It's not something that I feel like I personally um, struggled with as much. I've always be, been more of a feeler. Um, and felt mm-hmm. emotions and even been accused of being a, a drama queen. Uh, that's why I write really well <laughs> with stories. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I see that. I see it so much. And there's other emotions that I have trouble, you know, processing and things like that. Thankfully, um, and I think this, this is part of why I am able to teach and share things in the way that I uh, am. And especially at a young age was because I started therapy when I was nine. Um, and so I've, I've been in this world for a very, very long time. And, um, and so I, I was learning how to process things. I was learning how it, at least to try <laughs> to right. do them. Um, kind of like if you, uh, I, I play a lot of golf and you can always tell the guys swings that grew up in a country club um, and that grew up playing. Mm-hmm. because they have a great swing. They may not always be able to play well, but if they, that's usually because they don't get to play much or practice much. But like we've got a couple guys in uh, a group of mine from college that um, there's one guy who, you know, he plays golf like twice a year and still just, you just see glimpses of greatness in there, <laughs> but it's, it's because he, when he was real young, he was doing that. And in the same way, when I was real young, I've been doing this. I saw whenever I was 16, my dad, um, again, grew up in a trailer park, single parent home, really tough situation. Um, I watched how, um, he went to a Dale Carnegie course mm-hmm. and it like really, really impacted his life. It still it didn't help him with me, <laughs> but like I saw with everybody else, the impact that had on him. And so I realized, oh my gosh, like this can really impact people's lives. And so I started diving even further into that type of stuff. So therapy and then that, um, and it's amazing the impact, you know, there's a, I can't remember who said the quote, but it's basically that it's easier to build uh, strong boys than it is to repair broken men. Hold on. That's no problem. <laughs> that's uh, that's true. I've I I recently heard that quote too, and I can't remember where it came from. But you know, something when we talk about that, like um, that's what our parents were taught. That's what their parents were taught, and. You know, that's something I don't, you know, I don't blame them for that's how I was taught. Like, that's, 
that's how that's all that they knew. But now, yeah. like one thing that um, I've been saying for a few weeks is all these people are focused on the past. Oh, it was so much better in the past. There was so you know, there's this in the past. Why do we want to go back to a time where we didn't know what we do now? Like we know so much more. So why would we stay doing the same things if you know something more? Rather than go back, do you want to, you're saying you want to go back to a time when you were ignorant? Like, I understand that, right? I understand. Yeah. There, there is a sense of like being able to not know the things that you know. Like, that's kind of yeah. why we miss childhood is because we, we're innocent. Is bliss. We didn't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but knowing what I know now, if I, still raise my kids and I, I'm not saying like I won't have moments where I'll slip because of there will be but like you know I want to teach my two boys to to embrace their emotions that and that's what I've been working on with them like um I was very proud I don't know if I told this story on the podcast or not but uh the other night I told my oldest uh when I put him to bed I'm like oh we're gonna have to trim your fingernails tomorrow and he goes, oh, why? And I said, I was tired. And I said, because I said so. And he goes, what's that mean? I'm like, trim your fingernails. You know, it's like when you p- take the clippers and you trim them back, and you make them smaller. He goes, no. What does because I said so mean? And I realized, and this was my four-year-old, that that was the first time I ever said first that First time you said that. Yeah. And so I laughed and I, I explained to him that, no, we need to trim your fingernails. Daddy was tired. <laughs> But we need to trim your fingernails because I don't want you scratching yourself. I don't want you hurting other people on accident. And they get dirty. And so, you know, that just honestly, it brought tears to my eyes that that he said that and that he feels safe enough to say something like that, too. Like, to ask also, I mean, it's well, also, it's incredible that he made it to four years old before hearing that. I mean, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Um. That's, I will. I will say though, not yeah. not along with, with what you're saying with with that, but I do think it's it's imp- it, This is an important point that I try and share with with parents a lot is that um, humans are really bad. You see this in relationships a lot that um, we pendulum swing. And the thing that I'm nervous about for our society is that because the way. Um, like my dad raised me mm-hmm. and the way a lot of people were raised, they are going in the opposite direction completely. And, um, and we're going to suffer as a society because of that. Um, there's, it, it's always the middle ground. We always have to find um, the middle and the middle usually is the, at the top of a mountain is the best way of putting it. Yeah. I don't think you read, I don't think you read transformational leadership, but in that we talk about how people oftentimes believe that there's only two ways to lead. You're either the, uh, the jerk that's angry mm-hmm. and super, super tough, or you're the soft pleaser. And we're like, no, at the top of the mountain is transformational leadership. And that is enforcing healthy boundaries with love and respect and it's it but the thing is is that that's hard that's messy and it's so much easier to just go to these it's the same thing in politics right it's oh let's just go this way or let's go over here it's like no actually like 
it's this there's there's middle ground mm-hmm. of like we have to wrestle inside of this and figure out okay what what really is best not not just this reactionary bullshit of it's easy to go on one side or the other on these extremes no like it's wrestling in the middle and climbing that mountain but but climbing mountains is is hard you know it, it's a it's lot easier hard. to 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 operate at the at the base consciousness level um that's tribal mm-hmm. and that's why i piss off a lot of people <laughs> because I'm going to go into right-wing circles and I'm going to tell them things that, that they don't want to hear when they start talking about, you know, Christianity and Jesus. And I'm going to say, well, guess what? Jesus was kneeling in the dirt with a woman that was caught in adultery. So I think if we have to, you know, if we wonder where we should be, you know, at when it comes to people that are kneeling, it's probably with the people that are kneeling. Uh, when it comes to people that are hurting and broken, when it comes to uh, violence and, and guns and things like that it's kind of tough and i grew up in oklahoma i own a lot of guns but then when i started actually getting challenged by people that were like yeah where do you think jesus stands on guns and it's like oh yeah this is tough like let's 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 actually wrestle through this stuff and then oh over here oh we should just get rid of uh you know student debt and people shouldn't have to pay and everything should be free and it's like oh oh well you know that somebody has to pay for that there's no such thing as free and you know like let, let's look at socialism and let's look at like and just unpacking on both sides and make and it just makes everyone uncomfortable because it's like no there's not these simple answers it, and you know that's something i i i love that you said that um it's very having those conversations is very hard and that's you know people absolutely hate to have those conversations and that's that's where like we want to be as untapped keg we want to uh you know have those uncomfortable conversations that people don't want to have and that's something that my my friend that we've uh, met through the podcast, the bear project has, we talk about hard things. We talk about things that maybe we don't agree on. We, t- and that's okay. It's okay to talk about that stuff. And it's important to see from both sides and just understand that we're going to have, you're going to have differing opinions. Like no matter what, my opinion comes from RJ Zimmerman's mind. Your opinion right. comes from Joshua Metcalf's mind. Like, right. I think that we've, we grew up in this really individualistic society and it's good, right? It, it's good to be your own person. It's good to figure things out on your own. And we kind of expect that. But now we have more knowledge on like why let's say just the mental health thing that we we're talking about. Like mm-hmm. one thing that I, I really want to get into uh, with, and this is just like me personally. Yeah. We treat the symptom of addiction and yeah. we don't always treat the why. And that's something that I want to get into is the why. And that's something I didn't look into till like we started the podcast for over a year. 
why did I drink the way that I drank? Like, why did I always get blackout drunk? Why did I always try to make people like me? Why did, you know, why did I move from women to women? Like, what was it there mm-hmm. that I was missing? So those conversations, are they're messy and not everybody can enjoy them. So that's, I think that that's really important. Hey everybody, welcome back to Untapped Keg, episode 100 with Joshua Medcalf. I'd like to take this time to tell you about our sponsor, Way Skincare. It's winter time, changing of the seasons. I notice that my skin gets drier a lot faster and that I have to drink a lot more water in order to uh, feel the same hydration level that I would in the summer, which Feels kind of weird, but I that's just me. I don't know. Maybe other people feel it too. Way has a solution for you. Quench thirsty skin and leave it feeling satin smooth with Way Melrose Place Body Cream. Fast absorbing to nourish your skin when you need it most. <clears throat> the hydration, it lasts and it prevents dryness. It has high quality ingredients like squalene, coconut oil, kupuashu butter, and cocoa butter. Experience the new way Melrose Place body cream and body cleanser, your body, your way. Go to T-H-E-O-U-A-I dot com and use code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, to get 15% off your entire purchase. That's 15% off your entire order at theway.com. Offer code BELIEVE. This episode's also brought to you by NordVPN. What's more important than peace of mind? Nothing. And that's what NordVPN is here for, to give you peace of mind while you are online. And with all of the threats that you face today on the internet, it is more important than ever to be sure that you have the best VPN you can get. NordVPN is the world's best VPN service, offering the fastest connectivity, most servers, and next-gen encryption to make sure that everything you do online stays secure. Plus, you can use NordVPN on all of your computers and devices, no matter the operating system. With NordVPN's unlimited bandwidth, you never have to worry about a slow connection either, and plans start at under $4 per month. So grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com believe or use the code Believe that's B L E A V to get up to 70% off your NordVPN plan plus one additional month for free. It's also risk free with Nord's 30 day money back guarantee. That is nordvpn.com slash B L E A V. Check it out and see how it improves your internet. So, Joshua, before the break, <laughs> we we're having a good conversation about having messy conversations, right? And how I, w- what I would say is there's that, this saying that perception is 90% or your reality is 90% your perception or perception is 90% of re- I can't remember how it goes. Anyway, your perception is your reality, right? How you perceive the world around you. And one thing that we do 
is we give ourselves echo chambers, especially on social media. It's very easy to do. Yeah. And it's hard to break out, but it's necessary in order to change your mindset, find what you're missing in your life. And this is something that like your books have taught me is that nobody's going to come to you with information that you need. You have to seek it out. That's the difference between school and adult life is that in school, you learn the lesson and you take the test. And in life, you take the test and you learn the lesson. And you have to seek out the information that you think you're missing. So, you know, what was the what was the moment for you that made you seek out kind of this change that you made? So for those who don't know, Joshua was was you're in the final part of your uh getting your master's degree, right? You're in like the final stages of right. Oh, I did all my write, work. I just had to write a, a, a thesis. You just had to write your thesis and you made a drastic life change by moving to yeah. LA and working at a homeless shelter. Yeah. And living there and living there. What went into, um, you know, you deciding that you needed to make this life change. Um, yeah, I mean, my whole life I had been focused on, I'm probably going to go to law school. Uh, that's when I was at Vanderbilt getting a communications degree. That was the, the focus. And then I had the, you know, opportunity to go and play out my last year of eligibility at Duke and work on my master's. And, um, I had an amazing experience from an educational perspective at Duke, got, got to study under and work with some of the most fascinating people in the world and, um, and did really well there. I'd always struggled academically, but for the first time, I felt like I had a lot more autonomy in the classes that I got to choose. And it was called a master's of arts and liberal studies. And so I literally could choose, uh, any class across the entire, um, Duke system to, uh, take these classes. I could take three undergrad undergrad classes and the rest had to be, um, master level classes. Um, and so, um, I did that. I did really well and, um, had taken the LSAT was ready to go to law school, had even some scholarship opportunities to law school. And, and then, um, I just had a a night where I had this kind of crazy thing happened. And, and basically it made me think about, um, you know, what would I do if, uh, if money didn't matter? And, um, you know, I grown up really, really poor. Like my dad, uh, like I said, grew up in a trailer park. I can vividly remember dreaming about happy meals whenever I was six years old. Um, my dad ended up becoming a very good and successful eye surgeon, but even, even then that was more like whenever I was 17, 18, 19, 20. And, and so the thought of, you know, what would I do if money didn't matter? That just, it, it was so far away from my mind. And, um, and after this night, the, the thought that kind of came into my mind was, you know, I really felt convicted in my heart that if, um, if I would serve people, if money didn't matter, then that's what I needed to do if money did matter. And so I just, I, I 
skip scholarships to law school and I moved across the country downtown into a, a homeless shelter in uh, Echo Park and lived and served there for seven or eight months. And and really what I wanted to do was I saw the impact that the sports psychology class had on my life. And I wanted to share that with the masses. And I felt like I was uniquely equipped to do it because I felt like most of the people that were teaching this stuff were old white guys that had read stuff in books and they had never done it. And uh, Greg Dale was able to get through to me at Duke because I was the last pick on the team when we played pickup games. He couldn't get through to Mike Grella. Mike Grella was the best player on our team and the best player in the country. Uh, he opened his, his professional career with a hat trick for Leeds United. <laughs> and uh, um, no big deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like real, real good. Yeah. Um, and he couldn't get through to Mike. And I knew that I could. Because I wasn't coming in with educational experience. I was coming in with um, real experience. Yeah. There's, a, there's two words in Greek, gnosko and yada. And uh, I may be pronouncing yada wrong. It's Y-I-D-A. But gnosko means to have knowledge of something. Yada means to have knowledge through experience of something. And I knew that I had yada. And I knew that I could look those kids like Mike girl in the face and say, listen, <laughs> I, I have done this. I know what this actually can do. Mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite things was uh, I was at Wake Forest working with the women's golf program. And there was this young kind of prodigy on the team. And I could just tell she didn't listen to me for anything. And we were out uh, in the hitting bay uh, on like the second day I was there. And I told her, I go, grab a wedge. She's like, what? And I was like, yeah, grab a wedge. I was like, you see that target out there? And they literally had a bullseye target, you know, about three feet uh, circle, probably a hundred yards out. And I said, let's see, you can hit it first. Um, I hit it on the third try and I go, now do you want to, <laughs> now do you want to listen? Um, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not just telling you stuff. Like I can do this. I've done it. Um, and she did. She started to listen. Um, and there's just, there's a lot of those people that are teaching from Gnosko. And it's not that Gnosko, you know, knowledge is bad. It's just that there's a big difference between, you know, knowledge and wisdom. <laughs> and, um, and so I, you know, for whatever reason, just felt really uniquely called uh, and equipped to, to do that. Um, and so I kind of made that my mission of, you know, love people, serve people, provide value, and really try and dive into this stuff as, as much as I could and just be able to learn it inside and out um, so that I could take my practical experience and be able to share that with people, but then also, um, you know, be able to understand the science and, um, you know, the, the actual technical stuff as well, but be able to put that in a form that, that actually makes sense to people instead of, um, you know, there was, there was too much stuff that I was reading in the sports psychology stuff. And I'm like, this has been written by people that have never done this. And it's very obvious. Um, and so I would, I'd come in and, you know, you'd have somebody in, in each school that's like, Oh, you know, this is their sports psychologist, or this is a, th these are the slides our sports psychologist gave us. Mm -hmm. And I would go through and I would shred 30% of it because I'm like, yeah. And, and every time the athletes would be like, yes. 
And I'm like, yeah, no, I, I'm one of you. <laughs> I, I know. Um, I know how frustrating it is. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's really where that, um, that came from. Um, just a real desire to, once again, there's like, what do I wish that I had whenever I was growing up? Like, you know, what, what do I wish that I had known? Why did I have to get the Duke to learn this? That was what was, that was the thing that kept, that just pissed me off so much is I was like, you know, I, I, my club team was ranked fourth in the country. Like I'd, I'd been to camps. I'd been to so many things. Like I played at Vanderbilt for three years. Like Vanderbilt's far from a soccer powerhouse. They, they cut our program after the third year, but it's not like you're talking about, you know, some community college and, you know, some teeny tiny area of North Dakota, yeah. like, it, why did I have to get to Duke to learn this? And so I just kind of said, you know what, I think I'm more wired to be an entrepreneur. And I think a lot of people that study sports psychology, they want a job. Mm-hmm. I've never wanted a job. I wanted to change the world. And, um, and so <laughs> it probably sounded pretty arrogant when I said it to uh, the, the director of that program. Um, but I just sent her an email and I said, listen, um, I'm not going to write a paper that sits on somebody's desk and collects dust. I'm going to create an organization that changes the world. And um, at that time, it sounded arrogant. At this time, I think I've transformed at least the face of mental training in this country and sports ecology. And, you know, when I got that position at, at, at UCLA to be the director of mental training, like that position didn't really exist. Yeah. <laughs> um, and now uh, 10 years later, um, there's a lot of that that has happened and chop wood carry water now gets used in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of middle schools and elementary schools and high schools. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to take this to um, the places and spaces, uh, especially where people that don't look like me, um, that they that they get access to this type of stuff, because I think that these are the types of advantages that don't look very big but if you get exposed to this stuff whenever you're five six seven eight nine years old i saw the difference when i would work with a kid that was 17 18 19 years old that had had somebody like me in their life when they were little Mm -hmm. it was it was the biggest cheat code (laughs) ever you could always tell they just they carried themselves with so much more certainty security um the way they operated everything. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I'd find it out, I'd be like, Oh yeah, of, of course. <laughs> like, and so I just really made that, you know, my mission that I wanted to take this to the masses and, um, and kind of destigmatize it as well to, to make it more palatable, to make it more digestible, to make it make sense to stop communicating. Sure. I've studied at Ivy league schools. I can, I can sit down and talk with PhDs and they may not like me because I don't have a PhD, uh, they may not like the influence that I have, but I can still communicate with them and, and use uh, the vernacular that makes sense to them. But guess what? When you're talking to five, six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds, when you're talking to people that haven't studied in, in those ways and haven't had the uh, privilege of getting that type of an education, you have to be able to communicate in ways that make sense to them. And that's really, you know, you've talked a little bit about that with my books. That's I, I try and write the way that I speak. And 
and I try and communicate in ways that actually make sense. And just because there's a big fancy word that you can use that might sound cool, Mm -hmm. really the only person that's going to sound cool to are other academics. It's not people that are actually trying to apply something. And so really trying to put it in language that is easily digestible, that makes sense, and that meets people where they're at. And I think the apply there is the key term. Because like you said, if you use that big word around certain people, blue-collar workers, you know, um, underprivileged kids, they're shutting off. They are. They're not listening anymore. Like, you might get one or two that will, but you're not going to get through. So, you know, Jenny has a question about, like, when you work with programs, do you also, you don't just focus on performance, but also like their personal life and how that has an impact on them and they, whether they, um, whether they know it or not, they're bringing that into the sport as well. So like, if you don't focus on your person and how you are, like you're, it it has a detriment on everything else. The first thing I want to make clear is that, um, I haven't really worked with the program and, I think it's four years now, three, three, at least. Um, when I was 32, 33, I, I really, I just turned 37, uh, two weeks ago. Um, I, I, thank you. I cut 99% of work out of my life and realized that I needed to kind of shift, um, my focus and put first things first and kind of get off the road and stop. And so Lucas Jaden has been running the brand for the last three or four years. Um, I support him and I, you know, I, I do a lot of behind the scenes stuff, but I, I don't, I hand off everything to him. Um, but yes, whenever I was out working with people, and if you look at, you know, the, the foundation of every single one of our books, um, identity is, is huge in that. And that is, you know, that your value, um, the, the lie that society wants us to believe is that your value comes from what you do. And, so if I were to go speak somewhere, usually uh, the first thing I do when I land is I go to Home Depot and I get a, a 15 foot thick um, chain. And when I walk out on the stage, on the stage, I, you know, I, I wrap that around my neck and I tell people that if you believe the lie that your value comes from what you do and not from who you are, you try and do life with this big heavy chain wrapped around your neck. You try and perform with this big heavy chain wrapped around your neck and no one is going to perform better with that wrapped around their neck. It's why you see people um, <laughs> do really weird things under pressure, <laughs> whether it's miss a layup or fumble a ball or stuff that they've done a million times that they're really good at but as soon as you start believing that lie that your value comes from what you do and not from who you are um you just put immense amounts of pressure on yourself um and it's why so many people are are drowning and suffocating because there's this pressure coming from this lie that just chokes them out and so yeah, I, we believe completely that your value comes from who you are and not from what you do and that every single human being's life is uh, infinitely priceless. Um, and so, yeah. That, the, honestly, like that's something that a lot of people need to hear. And I've been talking about it for a few months because, you know, after 
like I said, after reading your books, it's kind of changed my mindset to that growth mindset that you talk about. Um, yeah. You know, one of the things that are in Pound the Stone and also, you know, the, the book Hustle um, that people should pick up, you talk about mentors and having good mentors. Um, and obviously in Pound the Stone, it's Russ. Yeah. That, you really opened my eyes and you made me remember that I had a mentor and it's really the only time that I feel like in my life that I had a mentor when I was in high school. And it was between my junior and senior year and he was my JV basketball coach. Mm -hmm. And he helped get me from being on JV as a junior to being all conference as a senior and a lot of people thinking I could go play college ball. Yeah. And, but he didn't focus on my play. Like he, obviously he helped me and stuff, but he helped give me this mindset. Like he helped me with my anger for the first time in my life. Like yeah, I shifted from this person who had a quick fuse to you could literally like this happened in a game. You could punch me and I wasn't going to retaliate. Like that is, yeah. I don't know like the, the amount of good that a mentor does and really what he did and this relates back to sobriety is, you know, he put a beacon in my life that is almost like a lighthouse. And, you know, going through my rough stretch from college to fi- trying to find what I wanted to do to be proud of my life, to not feeling like a failure, I always had this light that I was going towards. And it was really the light that he put there in my life. So what a mentor can do is really important, and we lose sight of it. But what does a good mentor you know, mean to you? Um, well, you know, one thing I've always tried to do is, <clears throat> is sit at the feet of people that I look up to and, and learn from them. Um, it, it's something I, I don't know. I've always kind of done it. I've just been attracted to people that, you know, for whatever reason, there's, you know, some area of their life that I look up to. And I think that's one of the big things that I've had to, to kind of learn is that it's usually uh, area focused. Um, they, not everybody is great at everything in every area of their life. A lot of the guys I know that are really good at business tend to struggle in (laughs) family stuff. Yeah. Um, some of the guys that are really good at family stuff tend to struggle with, uh, business. Um, so it's kind of trying to, to sit at the feet of people and learn, um, but also being really careful who you, who you are mentored by and who you're um, taking that advice from. I kind of take, I kind of look at mentorship the same way that I do mental training and mm-hmm. people are like, uh, they're always, they always introduce me as an, an expert in mental training. And I'm like, everybody is an expert in mental training. We all listen to stuff. We all watch stuff. We all read stuff. We all are surrounded by people. We talk to ourselves and we visualize every single day. So um, it's why it's funny when people are like, all right, so, you know, like, what do I need to do with mental training? You know, like 10, 20 minutes a day, like, like, (laughs) well, the thing is like, 
I can give you some exercises to do for 10 or 20 minutes. I can give you exercises to do for two or three hours. But this is a 24 hour a day kind of thing because we're constantly mentally training. Mm-hmm. We're never not mentally training. And believing the opposite is only going to make it worse. Uh, you think that this five, 10 minute thing that you're going to do is going to override the other, you know, 86,000 seconds in your day. Like, oh, you spent 400 seconds doing one thing, spent 86,000 seconds doing something else. Like, probably not going to be that helpful. You know, you can, you can run for five minutes a day, but if you eat awful stuff and sit for the rest of the day and don't do anything else that's helpful, it, you know, that five minutes is, it's better than nothing, but that's not going to do that much. Um, and so I think that mentorship is the same thing that like some people are intentional about mentorship, but everybody has mentors. Some people's mentors are the real housewives of, you know, Hollywood. Some people's mentors are on social media. Some people's mentors are on, you know, uh, whatever the NBA, like you were constantly, um, being mentored by people. It's that there are some people that are intentional about that. Mm -hmm. They're intentional about who they're allowing to influence them. And then there are other people who just allow that to happen that would never even use those types of words. But the same thing with what we actually call, you know, um, what most people talk about with mental training, we call the fuel for your heart. And those are those six things of what you read, what you watch, what you listen to your self-talk, who you surround yourself with and what you visualize. It doesn't matter whether you believe in that or not. Everybody's doing that all day long. Um, You are fueling your heart with something. Um, And the same thing, whether you're intentional or not about who's, you know, quote unquote, mentoring you, you're being mentored by someone. Um, and it's just a matter of, are you recognizing that, you know, in burn your goals, um, Jamie Gilbert talked about how there was a guy, uh, on our team at Vanderbilt, our freshman year that, um, that Jamie would listen to what he had to say and follow it as if it was, you know, the truth. And that guy didn't know anything, but (laughs) you know, that was who we, we, learn from. Um, so to me, it's, it's more a matter of, are you being intentional about the mentors in your life? Are you being in, are super intentional about that? And, and being really careful of like, when you look at the people, especially in business, like that you, that you look up to, are you checking and seeing like, do they have the type of family relationships? Do they have the stuff that's going to matter on the deathbed type of, uh, impact and relationships that you want? Um, you know, one thing that's always at the forefront of my mind is, um, you know, like I'm going through a a very, very stressful situation the last few days with a situation that's probably going to end up in a legal battle. And I'm frustrated because I don't care so much about the the outside stuff. I don't care so much about, uh, you know, the external things. What I've always cared about is the people I want to hold me in the highest regard are the people that I'm around on a day-to-day basis. I want the people that I'm closest with. I want my circle. Um, I care what those people think about me. People out in the world, they can think whatever they want. You can think that I'm a this. You can think that I'm a that. Cool, whatever. 
but the people that that spend the most time with me, the people that I do life and business with, I I care what those people think. And you know, right now we're in a situation where it's frustrating because you know the the the, the yin and yang of of Lucas and I. Uh, you know, I have so much empathy for him because his situation is hard. You know, he's he's got me and I'm more of a, a lover and a fighter. And, you know, when people uh, do things that, you know, when they just straight up, you know, steal from you, uh, I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to probably fight. And, you know, Lucas is more the the pure lover and peacemaker. And um, but, you know, in the situation that I'm going through, it's I'm I'm so worried about and focused on on my relationship with Lucas more than anything of like that that's where my heart is at of like I'm angry about you know people just blatantly stealing things and Mm -hmm. using it as their own um but also how do I try and navigate this situation in a way that um you know that I don't hurt my relationship with Lucas because that's what really at the end of the day on my deathbed you know, the people that are stealing and, you know, blatant copyright infringement, whatever. Um, but my relationship with Lucas, that's what really matters to me. And that's the type of stuff on my heart of like, you know, I want to always try and um, live my life in a way that the people that are closest to me hold me in the highest regard, not the people that read my books or think like, I know that I can impress those people that's that's easy whenever people see you know this tiny little bit um that that's easy but i I care a lot more about um you know those those people that that see you on your off days those people that know you at your at your worst um that's that's more of my focus and so when i think about mentorship it's trying to find people that um you know one of the things i love about one of the guys that i've uh, had in my life for a really long time since college. Um, he crushes it in, in the business world has done a phenomenal job. Um, but the thing I'm most proud of is when I talk to his wife and his wife tells me, you know, when Scott comes home, um, he has that same energy that he gives to our kids. And she's like, I don't know how he does it. Like he comes home and he still, is just the same person that he is with you guys of giving energy and adding. And, and she's like, I don't, I don't know. And, and that to me means so much more than like, yeah, he'll probably sell his business one day for a hundred million or $200 million. And and that's an incredible accomplishment. Mm -hmm. But what I think is special is that um, his kids get his best energy and that his kids aren't shortchanged on that because his business gets his best energy. And so, you know, that question of, you know, who gets your best energy, who gets your best time, who gets your best love? Um, You know, we live in a world where uh, very often that's not the people that are going to be there uh, at our funeral. That's not going to be the people that are going to matter on our deathbed. Mm -hmm. And so being really intentional about the people that we're being mentored by and um, just knowing that that's really important down the road. And I think something that we can lose sight of too, and it's part of how we grow up is we can also choose who we're going to put our energy into and who ends up at our funeral. Like just because 
you grew up with someone for 25 years. They don't want to come with you. If they want to drag you down, they want to be that crab in the barrel that you talk about, pull you back to them. Like it's okay to put some distance there. And if it, they don't want to come with you and be there. It's all right to move on. And I love what you said about we're all being mentored because like I said, like your, your worldview, it makes you turn or it makes the, what I have learned is that I need to seek out different perspectives on life. And like your perspective is completely different than mine. And that's what I need. And that's why your books have spoken to me so much. And, um, so I, 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 there's a really important point. Um, socially and everything that we're going through as a country um you know a couple uh it may have been four years ago now i was working with a with a program and there was some some stuff that happened uh around the the kneeling conversation Mm -hmm. and um the coach called and was like what i just spoken to the program and that day it had nothing to do with me they'd already planned this out but you know they they took a picture and it kind of went viral and people started calling him and saying, Hey, you know, what, like what's going on and we're going to pull our funding. And, um, and, and I said, you know, he's like, what do you think we should do? And I said, well, I said, you got to get people together, bring in, bring in the police chiefs and police to talk with your players, have them have conversations about what their life is like and have the players share their experiences with law enforcement, uh, with the, with the police sit down, break bread, have conversation. Mm-hmm. Our, one of our biggest issues is that we don't, we don't spend time with people that, that don't look like us. We don't spend time with people that come from different walks of life than us. Um, we have very siloed lives mm-hmm. and, um, and we, when you, when you sit down, one of my favorite things about Jesus is that Jesus was constantly, um, I, I almost want to say partying with, cause I think that that point gets kind of missed. <laughs> um, cause it kind of was, he was, there was a lot of food and drinks and laughter and joy. Um, and that's usually where he was starting with people. Sure. He would get up and he would speak, but when he, like he would actually sit down with people he would actually, you know, with Zacchaeus, it was like, Hey, I'm going to come and eat with you today. Like get out of that tree, come eat. Let's, let's hang out. Let's do life together. Um, and when you don't do life with people that don't look like you, that don't come from the same backgrounds as you, mm-hmm. um, it's very easy to judge. It's very easy to say, Oh my God, you know, like, um, whether it's health related, uh, whether it's fitness related, whether it's athletics related, whether it's business related, you know, everybody has different, uh, advantages and disadvantages. Um, they've been exposed to different things, but until we actually have the empathy to sit down and try and listen and learn mm-hmm. about somebody else's story and where somebody else is coming from, um, we're just going to keep tearing each other apart at the, at the core fabric of our, uh, of our society, because we just won't sit down with other people. Um, I, I feel very blessed in the sense that, you know, I've spent three and a half years in the projects. I've lived in a homeless shelter. I've, I have friends that, uh, run billion dollar companies. I've been to, uh, Ivy league schools. I have, <laughs> 
um, I've I've gotten to travel uh, across the world. I've I've got this this vast uh, amount of different experiences with people, and the more that you get exposed to different people cultures, um, if you're open to it, you start to just develop more empathy. Um, that that people grew up very different than I did. Um, and it's the same thing of like, I, I, I try and be open-minded in the sense of I'm very aware of the way that I look. I get people that look at me all the time. And if you see me, especially uh, at this point in my life, you might see the car that I drive, or you might see the clothes that I wear or a watch or the fact that I'm at a country club or things like that. And immediately go this rich privileged prick and think, you know, that, yeah. that type of thing. And, and it happens a lot to me. And then somebody will say something about, Oh my God, I just can't believe like, how do you live downtown in San Diego? All the homeless people, it's just ridiculous. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that doesn't bother me. I, I lived and served in a homeless shelter. I've slept on skid row. Uh, and they're like, they're like, yeah, you don't want to judge this book by its cover um, because I, I'm not that guy. Uh, yeah. And 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 so, but again, but that takes sitting down, breaking bread, getting to know people, listening to their story, you hearing their story, yes. you telling them your story, um, finding that common ground, and and again, like I, I have you know, people on the far left political side, the far right political side that I'm, that I'm really, really close with. And, uh, you know, the more that, uh, it's so fun to me whenever I get to, to, to sit down, especially one-on-one and listen to where they're coming from. And then oftentimes once I've heard them, because most of the time people just want to be heard, then I can sometimes share something or a story or a perspective that might be able to kind of help them see something from a different perspective. Um, but it doesn't usually work if it's a, you know, a preachy tweet or a, you know, a, a top down thing. I had to, I had to really work on my heart posture whenever I would speak because Oftentimes, whenever I would be on stage, I'd catch myself. And sometimes I would even sit down on stage because of this. And I would tell people like, I, w- I want to be with you. I don't want to talk to you. Um, because there's a, there's, a, there's a big difference when you're being talked to or whenever you're, you're with someone. Um, and just the more that we can do that as a society of really seek out those uncomfortable conversations mm-hmm. and and even try and listen and learn. Like one of the things I love about uh, Twitter, there's there's a lot of crazy stuff, um, but I try and just learn a lot and not learn uh, facts. I try and learn perspectives. Like I, when when somebody writes something crazy, um, I try and go in and I try and go through the the comments and read a hundred comments. And just see all the different perspectives that are on there. Uh, oh, wow. I hadn't thought about that. Hmm. Hmm. I haven't thought about that. I don't, I don't get on there and go, ooh, now's my chance to you know, use my gift with yeah. words to be able to linguistically you know, put these people in their place. Now, I want to learn. 
I, I, I want to see where these people are coming from. And then when I sit down with people that I actually do life with, that I'm actually in relationship with, I have more context for, oh, maybe this is where that was coming from, or, well, I've thought about this. And, 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 and then I'm able in a relationship to be able to share something that might be able to impact somebody's perspective. And they might be able to share something that impacts my perspective. Um, that was beautiful. First off, like being able to, as you said, not just take something that you learned, but be able to apply it and put it into words for people to understand it, You know, that's something that a lot of people can't do, but you know, when you say listening and I, you know, your meaning there is absolutely heard. And it's, it's not listening for your chance to respond. It's listening to understand. And that's where a lot of us right now, and I say us because I fall into it as well. Like we, we need to get better at in listening and not waiting for our chance to respond, but just sitting with it for a little bit. Um, yeah, that's uh, going again back to Twitter that so many times, uh, you know, I, that was how I built my whole brand was on Twitter. Um, and back in the day, people were like, I'm not going to join Twitter. Like, what am I going to do? Tell people about, you know, that I went to, to the grocery store today. Mm-hmm. Like people need to know about my life. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand the, the opportunity to learn. <laughs> the, I, I follow people that I think are crazy on Twitter. Mm-hmm that I disagree with wholeheartedly, but I want to actually hear where they're coming from. I want to see, I don't want to live in an echo chamber where I only listen to people that believe the exact same things that I believe. I'm a big boy. I can be challenged. I can hear other perspectives. I can disagree with people. I can, I can, I can listen and not feel like, oh my God, like this is gonna like, no, like I, I don't want to just hear, you know, what I believe. I, I, I want to hear things from a different perspective because then number one, that should make me like, if I really believe what I believe then what, what, what am I afraid of? I love that. I love that. You know, like, what am I <laughs> like? I'm afraid of hearing, hearing something different. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if, if what I believe is true, see, I think there's an issue today in our society of, of, of people believing their truth. Oh, just speak your truth. I'm not interested in my truth. I'm not interested in your truth. I'm interested in capital T truth. And capital T truth um, can stand up to anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not afraid of anything. Um, I, I've said for a long time, most sports psychologists do not want to share a stage with me. They do not want to have a public debate with me <laughs> because truth will win. And as soon as they start saying stuff that is untruthful and then it's exposed to truth, people go, oh, yeah, no, no that, that, yeah, that that's true. And so what, what, what do, 
what are we so afraid of? Like, I, I don't, I don't understand when, I mean, but to me, again, this is, this is what I'm worried about with our societies. When did we become so soft? We can't hear something different. We can't be exposed to something different and go, oh yeah, this, this is actually true. I, I'm not interested in little T truths. I'm, I'm interested in, in, in big T truth because big T truth is always going to win. I'm not afraid of anything. I think we became so soft when we started weaponizing fear because that is yeah. what's happened. We've weaponized fear and it's made us paralyzed with hypotheticals. And yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, you know, that's, it just is like, here's something like that with my youngest, right. That I've thought about like growing up, you know, boys did not wear pink. Girls did not wear, you know, certain manly colors. My youngest we went to the store and we got um, sunglasses. My oldest picked out a pair of orange uh, cars, like uh, Lightning McQueen sunglasses. My youngest wanted Minnie Mouse sunglasses. So what did I tell him? Okay, get them. That's what he wanted. What am I scared of? Like, what were, yeah. why were people scared of a color? Why were people nervous that, like, you know, if he wants to wear a bow tie, wear a bow tie like on his head. Like that's what Minnie Mouse does. And so I asked him um the other day we were singing uh the song at the end of Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, and I said, Who are you? And he said, Minnie. And I'm like, Okay, awesome. Like, good. Like who you love is who he and that's who that's who he loves right now. He loves being the pink ranger when he plays Power Rangers. Yeah. Okay, go for it. I that's something like we, we put these small fears in ourselves that we've learned that have also been put into us, but like we allow them to be there and yeah. we let them fester and believe them. And then that keeps us from being passionate, yeah. right? Because we don't, if you're passionate, then you're not living in reality, yeah. depending on what you're passionate about. But it does, that is almost... We don't, we, we, your imagination, we kill imagination because it's not real. You can't put it into work, but if you don't have imagination, you can't create something new. If you don't have imagination, you know, there's no, like, we're, we're never going to change, uh, advance as a civilization. Like you have to have a certain level of imagination for creative thinking and problem yeah. solving and what you what you talked about there like it just it just it lit a fire in me and yeah well it's fine so number one pink is like my favorite color i have on <laughs> i love it i too. have on capri pants right now that have on that have flowers on them um but so we talked about this before you turned the camera on i didn't know if we if there would be a, a point to to share it but if you see uh the the this is my living room wall mm -hmm. and it's the basquiat uh, wallpaper and on top of that i wrote uh spray painted um make shit and it comes from if you see in the corner there those are these uh drawings that i used to make whenever i was a kid um but growing up in tulsa oklahoma um i was taught that those were um those were not that was an art um, and so I, I, I had this vision when we moved to this place, my computers, 
getting low, so I'm going to plug it in here. Okay. Um, and I, I like those pants. I like those pants. Those <laughs> <sweet>. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's funny at the country club. I get I I get made fun of all the time for them. Um, and you know, and I just I'm like, well, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I like and not worry that it doesn't fit into, you know, somebody's limited view of, uh, masculinity. Um, but yeah, so it says makeshift and, um, so actually the first one that I did, I want to find the final one. As we become adults. Jenny says you sound like the coolest person at your country club. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't think that they would agree with that. (laughs) Um, So this is what I wrote and it's cool. My next door neighbor is kind of, she has almost finished it. So she's put this on the, she's painted it on the wall. I was just going to put it on the wall, but she's actually painting it on there. It's pretty cool. Um, as we become adults, we sink deeper and deeper into a prism of perfectionism. We believe the lie that we aren't artists, that only the chosen few can create, that something has to be perfect, that we have to color inside the lines, that we have to accept what is offered and that we can't make anything better. I love the phrase make shit because it gives me permission to make things that suck. Because if I make enough shitty things, eventually I'll get better and make something awesome. It's wild to me that even though I sell almost a million dollars of art every year, I still have trouble believing I'm a real artist. I loved making art as a kid, but I couldn't draw traditionally. So I developed this deep belief that I wasn't an artist. Every kid believes they are an artist and they are because they make shit all the time, often at the disgust and frustration of the adults. The way to ensure that you never make anything awesome is to never make anything at all. My most famous piece of art is far from my best work, but my job isn't to be judge and jury on my own stuff. My job is to do the work. My job is to make shit and hit publish. It's your job as well, but no one hires you for this job. You have to choose to get in the arena. There's a seat in the locker room, a jersey with your name on it, but you have to be courageous enough to choose yourself, get in the arena and do the work. In a world full of critics, be a creator. We get one life, one at bat, make it count. That's so applicable in so many areas of people's lives. And um, we've been talking about just doing things like, you know, um, hobbies. Don't be afraid to make changes. Like think of anything you did for the first time. You were uncomfortable. It didn't go well. And maybe it did. Maybe you were a savant, but. More than likely, it just didn't work the way you wanted. Like I'm, you know, watching my kids uh, walk, watching my kids pedal a bike, pedal a tricycle. Yeah. It's it's uncomfortable for me to watch them. They don't know it's uncomfortable though because they don't know any better. It's only right. I would put on to them, but like my my oldest, who's four now, like he couldn't pedal a bike till he was three and a half. My youngest, who's two and a half is pedaling a bike and like the this little car he has it's a pedal one and it's got a steering wheel and he's doing it all over the house like he can go navigate himself in between doors and stuff 
and it's from wow. watching his brother and like he did right. struggle but like that's a very simple way of breaking down what you said and yeah you know it's I, what i loved about when i moved to los angeles that um I'll, I'll tell you this quick story of i was in costa rica um with a girlfriend at the time and it was this very small uh little boutique resort and they um there was an there was another family that was there and it was like probably 15 of them and you know aunts uncles but there was only one young kid and he was probably 11 years old and he was kind of a savant and you could tell everybody was kind of obsessed with him he was this he could fix anything and um three of the family members were professors at pretty big universities and i was listening and i started asking questions and i kind of told them a little bit about what i did and i said um i said guys i know this probably sounds crazy but i was like i think you need to get this kid to los angeles and you know they're from new york and, and they were like well, why do you say that <laughs> and i said well battle again <laughs> exactly and i said because um and yes, this is generalizing. Yes, this is a little bit stereotypical. But um, I said, here, here's what most likely will happen with a kid like yours. People only know what they know. And when teachers see someone like him, all they know is that he needs to become a doctor. And he's going to go to medical school because that's what we do with really smart people. Mm -hmm. Um Maybe he becomes a lawyer, but really what he's going to do is he's probably going to be pushed down a path to medical school. Now, I have no problem with medical school. Maybe that's what's best for him. I said, but um, if he moves to Los Angeles, he's going to be exposed to creative people and stuff that is so outside of the, the traditional norm but people are going to more know what to do with him. He's going to see different things, just like your younger son is seeing his older son do something and so much, so much easier for him. Mm -hmm. If all you've ever known is smart people become doctors, smart people become lawyers, smart people become bankers. Um, you know how sad it is to me that so many of the brilliant kids that I went to school with go into banking. And, their, right. their mind is used to exploit the financial system instead of if they were grown, if they had grown up and were exposed to something else, they might have literally transformed the world. Mm -hmm. They're brilliant. They come up with these financial schemes that they're, they're just so incredibly brilliant. It was one of the things when the Wolf of Wall Street was sentenced that what the judge said to him is if you had only used your mind in ways that benefit our society. Do you know what you could have done, Jordan? Do you know how you could have impacted our world? But if that's all you've ever known, if that's the environment that you grow up in, that when you're really smart, that you're taught to go into finance and exploit all the financial things, make as much money as possible. And, and I'm not selling, saying that LA is some special place that, you know, people don't have, you know, uh, character flaws and ethical and moral, moral challenges, but there's just a level of creativity. There's a level of seeing things from a different perspective. I mean, mm -hmm. it blew my mind when I got to Los Angeles and I saw that a 19 year old girl was creating these wristbands that had big letter words on them that were being sold at, uh, all over. 
She was selling millions and millions of dollars of these wristbands. And as stupid and silly as of a thing that that was, it was the first time I saw that and was like, you can do that. <laughs> like you can just, you can just do that. That's. I didn't grow up in a world where you could just do that. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't exposed to something like that. I wasn't, when I got to LA, all of a sudden I was exposed to all these people that were just, were just making shit. <laughs> and so when you get exposed to stuff, it just expands your mind of like, oh my gosh, like there's all these other things, all these other possibilities out there that I can, that I can do. And that was my thing with this kid of like, I, I, I like there's, I, I'm not an, a pure anti-education person. I, I have my qualms with the education system and I've done a lot and I have a lot of conversations inside of it of how to fix it and make it better. But it's not anti-education, but it's like, but there's these other things that let's, let's be exposed to all of it and let's find out where we really fit and let's find out what really sets our soul on fire and let's become relentless in the pursuit of what sets our soul on fire instead of you have this really smart kid. And so we only know to put him down this, these three singular paths because they've just never seen it. I've, that is a really great perspective. And that's I agree 100% with you. So, you know, Wisconsin was where I grew up and I grew up in a small town. And one thing they do there is they put you in a box. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what you're talking about. We take people and yep. put them in boxes. And what I want for my kids and what I want to do for myself now as well is I want to take that box and I want to put my own stuff in there. No more no more of this. You're taking the box and pushing me down inside. I'm going to show you who I am instead of you telling me who I am. And reading your books just reaffirmed that for me and talking to you now reaffirms that. Like your passion See, is See, I don't want you to but I don't want you to put stuff in your box. I want you to crawl out of the box and live in the world that actually exists. Yes. I because there's an entire huge world and I'm guilty of it as well and being autistic, I I I like my little, I'm kind of like my puppy that my puppy, it's so strange to me. He has this little travel kennel and that's his little safe space. And so half the time I'll think that he's getting in trouble or doing something that he shouldn't be doing. And I'll, I'll go find him. And he's just in his little travel kennel, just happy as can be. And I'm like, dude, like you're free right now. You could go do any, like whatever you want. And, mm-hmm. and he just, he goes back to the little travel kennel and I don't want to just live in my little travel kennel, even though it, it's really safe and comfortable there. I want to get outside of that. I want to, I want to, I want to get outside of the box completely. You know, when people talk about, you know, thinking outside of the box, and I think there's a chapter in Hustle where I talked about, you know, um, acting and executing outside of the box, but really it's, it's living outside of the box. It's living outside of in that in, living in this space, in this mindset of who says, well, yes, who said, I'm you know, so you see, glad you brought that up because you see so many people though, that are doing that, right? Yes. Like that, that are living in tiny houses or that are living in a, in an RV or that they're, you know, they pack up their family and they, they travel the world, uh, you know, in, in 
all this other stuff of like, it's, it's what I realized with when people said that I was crazy when I skipped scholarships to law school and didn't write my master's thesis. And then when Pepperdine, Pepperdine came knocking and said, you could teach sports psychology, but you need a master's, you have a master's, right? And anything. And I was like, no. And then people once again were like, see, you messed up your life. You could have. And it's like, well, no, there's always a back door. There's always different ways. And like, it's never been easier to create whatever type of life that you want. Um, maybe not what you want, but like, there's so many different ways of doing life that we don't just have to live in this, this box model, this box house model. Like there's, you know, people get mad at me because I live in an apartment and I live in a high rise downtown and they're like, well, why aren't you buying a house? You need to buy a house. And I'm like, listen, maybe, maybe one day I'll buy a house. Maybe I won't, but just because that's what everybody else used to do. Doesn't mean that that's what I need to do. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't, you know, well, this is the way that you, and I'm like, well, I've already done what, what, what you're saying I've already done. I just did it in a different way. You're trying to get me to be able to have enough money saved up to where then it's going to spit me off enough money to be able to live for the rest of my life. And I'm like, I already did that. I just did it with intellectual property. <laughs> and but they're coming at me with this old school mindset that that's all they know. So it seems crazy to them that mm -hmm. somebody's doing something that doesn't fit in that box. I, I love it. Jenny says, uh, it's what you, you say is, uh, we don't know our fullest potential and yeah. it's, I mean, that is true. That is absolutely true. And like you said, like, I mean, this podcast, a lot of what I'm doing, it's like a lot of people are like, well, why are you doing that? Like I would be paralyzed with fear to do that. I would like moving. I live 35 years in Wisconsin and I'm moving my family to Virginia just because we needed a change in culture. And like, I put my career on hold and stayed at home with my kids while my wife pursued her career out here because mm -hmm. she did that for me at, well, at the start. I mean, we started businesses, she started businesses and I helped her, but like, it's my turn to do that and it's going to be okay. And like, it, it's helped me discover my passion for this. Yeah. And, you know, to break it down in very simple terms, like, I used to, I grew up with boiled vegetables. I grew up with no salt and pepper in food. Like I was very cookie cutter and vanilla with what I liked. And then I started watching the food network and I'm like, why don't I try this? I don't, who knows if I even know what my favorite food is. I probably haven't tasted it yet. And I still may not yeah. have, but it's time for me to get out there and try it. And that's exactly yeah. what you're saying. And I, you know, it's just, um, I know, I know we're running a little bit long. Do you have a few more minutes or should we start wrapping I'm good. up? Yeah. Okay. Good. The way that you write and the way that, um, I've heard your speeches and I've heard you on a few other podcasts, you tell a lot of, and you've done it on this one as well. And I, I love it because I also do it. We teach through stories and the power that comes with that. Um, where did you get your inspiration to? really use that as the vehicle to get your message through because it it's powerful and you can do it in a way that kind of turns people off and you can do it in a way that really inspires and um, it's inclusive. 
And that's the way that you do it. I, think. I don't, I don't know exactly. Um, I know John Gordon played a, a, a pretty big role in it um, from a, from a pure book standpoint. Um, but I, I think even be, before that, I, I didn't know how to do it necessarily in terms of writing fables before John. John was the one that really pushed uh, chop wood, carry water, wasn't chop wood, carry water. Chop wood, carry water was start here. Mental training finally made simple. IMG Academy had asked me to head up mental conditioning and leadership six, six and a half years ago. And I knew that no go-to book in sports psychology had been written. I knew that the reason why they were pursuing me as hard as they were is because I was kind of that guy. And so why not try and write it? So it was start here. Mental training finally made simple. And there was just a 45 page section of that book that was a little small fable called chop wood, carry water. John Gordon read it and read the, the draft. And he said, get rid of the rest of this stuff, expand this, make, this is the book. I fought him for a couple of weeks and then I finally uh, relented and, and did it. Um, but I think that what I had already been doing is, um, you know, there's a, there's a Bible verse that says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Your story is so powerful. That's why it's so powerful when we sit down and we break bread with people and we hear their story. Uh, I realized that, that my story was, was powerful. I remember, I actually do remember one specific point very early on. I was the director of mental training for Oregon women's golf and the head coach who I loved dearly, Rhea Scott. I, I did a presentation and and I always felt like I had to lean really heavy on the science because of not having a sports psychology degree. Mm-hmm. And, and I did this two and a half hour presentation and afterwards, and Rhea is just like the sweetest human. And she came up to me and she was like, Joshua, that was amazing. And I was kind of used to getting that response. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was kind of trying to break down. Like, I was like, okay. I was like, thank you so much. I was like, but what, like, what, what is it? Like, what was it that was amazing to you? And she was like, your stories. It's just your stories. And that was kind of a really pivotal point for me that it's going to be the stories. And then when you look at like little kids, like your kids never ask you to tell them a statistic, (laughs) ask you to tell them stories. Mm -hmm. We, we are, we are story driven people. We tell ourselves stories about ourselves. We tell other people stories about ourselves. Sometimes those stories aren't even really attached to reality. They're more like what you were talking about with perception and reality. And I think what that quote is getting at is that our, our reality is, is 90% perception. And it's yeah, just what we it. perceive. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's our perception is, is our reality in the same way of whatever story we've been telling ourselves that it, that becomes our our reality. And so stories are how we make sense of the world. Stories are how we make sense of our life. And that, you know, if you just, if you look at kids, that's how they, how they learn. And if you look at, if you look at media, if you look at movies, if you look at what we're attached to, it's why I'm struggling so much. This last year has been so hard for me with books because every single book I pick up, I, I can't get, I can't get through it. There's, 
there's the, the story isn't there. There's no captivating stories that are, that are pulling me in. And so, yeah, it just, it just makes sense that storytelling is the way that you can really get through to people. And simultaneously, I always felt like that I can tell you about a, a tool. I can tell you about a mental training thing. I can tell you about the science, but really what's what you're going to remember is the story. And especially if it's a a yada story of <laughs> from my experience of what I've done. You know, when I talk to kids that, you know, I, I'm not teaching you sports psychology. I'm sharing how I went from the last pick on the team at Duke to being the ACC player of the week, the Duke student athlete of the week and finishing second in points to the best player in the country. I'm, I'm sharing a story how I never scored a goal with my head in my entire life until I started using visualization. And then all of a sudden I scored a goal that was worthy of being on sports center top 10 against the top 25 opponent. And then the next week I scored another one and it was two weeks after applying visualization. Like that is the type of stuff that people go, Oh, it's that it's, it's what sells on infomercials, testimonials. They overcame them by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. You can argue with facts it's really hard to argue with somebody's story. Some people will, but like, if I tell you my story, it's, it's a lot harder to be like, that didn't happen. That's not true. But if I tell you a fact mm-hmm. or a stat, it's easier to argue with that. Yeah. But stories just connect with us on such a deep level that creates real change and inspiration. And, you know, like, I mean, the emotional level that um, you can get stories down to that make you put yourself in those shoes. Like, I, it, I'm i just remembering all of these stories that I've learned from that I have no experience in. But when you can, when you hear that story that touches you at that emotional level and you can just, you feel yourself there. You know, it's uh, it's probably the most powerful way to learn that we have. And mm-hmm. um, somebody that you talk about in uh, Pound the Stone, Hustle, and I've heard you bring him up on um, on podcast as well as uh, your pastor. Is it Judah Smith? Yeah. Um, how much influence has he had on the way that you tell stories. Oh, Judah is the best storyteller in the world. Uh, it's not even, it's not even close. Bert Kreischer is probably second, but <laughs> yeah, there's, there's the difference between people like Bert Kreischer and Kevin Hart and Judah is that Judah will tell a story. I was at a dinner with Judah in December, early December. And he, he stands up and he, he shares a story for like 20 minutes. And afterwards, I went up to him and I was like, did you like prepare that? Were you like really like did you if you and he was like, it's like, no, I it just it was I'm just like, it's insane because these other guys like they go to comedy clubs and they they build sets 
Mm-hmm. They practice and they practice and they, they, they practice what works. They practice the timing. They practice everything. Now, Judah's been speaking since he was 12, 13 years old, maybe, maybe even younger. And it's something I try and be very clear about to people because I know that I have a, a, a skill set and a gift. I know that I'm anointed, uh, especially when I get on stage. Um, but again, I was my mom had me in preaching competitions when I was six years old. I think I won my first preaching competition at seven years old. So there's a long, long uh, track record of work and, uh, and skill that's been put into that craft. But yeah, like I, I watched you to get up and, and tell this story and, and I was blown away and yeah, there's just nobody that's even close. And so what I did with Judah is, the first time I, I first time I heard you to speak, I was blown away, and then he he started coming to Los Angeles to speak. And in the beginning, it was twice on Wednesdays, and I would stay for both talks, and I would take notes in both. And then at one point, he was speaking three times on a Wednesday, and I would stay at all three and take notes at every single one. And there is. Uh, there's nobody I would say besides my mom uh, when I was younger who's had more of an influence on my life than than Judah, um, and especially from a storytelling perspective. I've studied him uh, more than I've studied anybody else. That's incredible. Um, I've heard you, <clears throat> as I said at the beginning of the show, like, Passion is infectious and the energy and like the way that you talk about him makes me honestly want to go to church and hear him uh, preach because we don't have to go to church. You just go online, go online to look it up. YouTube. I mean, that's a good point. I haven't, so I haven't been to church in, you know, 18, 20 years. Um, But the thing that I tell people to start with with him is um, there's this thing called the Jesus's Music uh, Project on on uh, you may be able to find it on YouTube as well, but it's definitely on iTunes. And um, there's about six different tracks in there that he, he there's music behind it and he storytells in it. And the the most beautiful thing. Uh, about the way that he teaches is so many people that um, are in religious Christian settings are, are more doing what I do and they're trying to teach self-help and they're Mm -hmm. trying to teach, uh, you know, morality or a right way to live or, you know, principles or something like that. Judas shares stories and he teaches nothing but Jesus and pure unadulterated Jesus. And that's the thing that is most attractive. Like people flocked to Jesus. That's what um, is so sad about what's going on right now, especially in, in the Western world, is that people are running away from Christianity because people that are claiming to follow Jesus have made it more about rules and more about don't do this um, and tribal warfare than they have, um, about actually following Jesus and loving people. And so it was always funny when I would 
speak in public schools, I'd always inevitably have one or two people come up to me and be like, I, I just don't know how you do it. Like, how, how do you, like, I know that I, I can hear the Bible verses and what you're saying. I can hear like what, what, where this is coming from. Like, how can you just not get it? And I'm like, listen, we live in America. People don't need to hear about Jesus. People need to experience his love. People need to experience Jesus. When you experience Jesus, you don't ever want to leave that. That that space is different. Re- religion equals do. Jesus equals done. Um, a lot of people are getting that twisted and, and mixed up and thinking that it's religion and it's do, 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 do. And, and Jesus already did it. So it's accepting his radical, reckless love and grace that we can't even comprehend. So my job isn't to share Jesus with people. And I'm very frank about this. I'm like, if I want somebody to hear about Jesus, I'm going to point them to Judah. There's nobody better that's going to share that than Judah. My job is to love people. And I'm going to mess that up a lot. But my job is not to go out and try and convince somebody or share something with somebody that in my opinion is just not my job. My job is to live and love them in such a way that they want to ask what's different about you. And if they can't ask what's different about you and believe me, there's a lot of people that can't, I'm really good at this. I'm really aware of it. I'm really good at articulating things in these types of settings. Living is really hard. And if I'm not living in such a way that somebody asks what's different, then it's probably best if I just shut my mouth because it's only going to make things worse. So until somebody wants to ask me, Hey, I don't understand. Like when somebody says, it doesn't make sense to me how your value can come from who you are and not from what you do. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. The only way that's true is if somebody was willing to give their life for you, that you're that that you're worth that much that they died on a cross for you and rose again. Like that's the only way that that statement holds weight in my mind. And, um, but if I haven't gotten them to that point, then it's, I I just need to keep my mouth shut because all I'm going to do is make things worse. The same way that when I was, you know, at UCLA and other places on staff, they'd say, we need you to work with this kid. And I would say, well, unless that kid wants to work with me, I'm not going to work with them because if, if they don't want this, it's only going to make things worse. Mm-hmm. I don't want to mess things up for something down the road that could be special in their life until they come to me. I'm not going to do it. I, I just got a, a phone call three weeks ago from one of my favorite kids and we had a very interesting relationship um, when she was at UCLA, but she, she never once came and and asked for help. Now I would kind of go to her and I could tell that she was kind of receptive. So I would try and get in her ear every now and then, um, but I would never push too hard. And, and it was so cool because now she called and was like, Hey, I want us to work together. And she'd never been pushed. Mm-hmm. I never, ever pushed her. You just never know when somebody's going to be ready. Um, but not pushing those types of things, whether it's mental training, whether it's some other thing that you believe, like if you believe what you believe, then just go live what you believe. And 
it's kind of what was fun with golf of like, um, I just won our, our club championship and I am far from the best player in our, in our club, but it was another one of those examples of if I want people to listen, (laughs) I, I need to, I need to do this stuff. Yep. I need to be living this stuff. And then when I am living this stuff, then the byproduct of that is, oh, like C.S. Lewis said, if we put first things first, secondary things aren't suppressed, they increase. But we live in this world where we're, we're taught and modeled to focus on all these secondary things. Hmm. That is i mean it's the truth and that's we talk about it sobriety you know like you said mental training mental health all of it unless you want to do it for you it doesn't matter like if i still like if i went back down the alcohol hole right now and i looked at my kids that i could see i was harming them and i wanted to get better for my kids I probably could do it for a little while. I probably could do it for a few months, for a year. There would be moments where I would be like, oh, they're not around. They won't see me. And I'd fall back into it. And then how deep am I going to fall into it? I don't know. But like when I decided I was going to go sober, it was a me choice. It was, I'm doing this. And it was the, honestly, it was the first time in my life that I made a decision for me. So Mm -hmm. like you said, if you're not open to the change if you're not open to working with somebody like we can all lead that horse to water but you know they're they're not going to drink it unless they want to and that's you know when you're making positive changes in life when you're opening your mind to growth when you are changing your heart posture and i love how you those are the words that you use it it's difficult to see sometimes like right in that moment but you know you can't always see the forest through the trees and sometimes you know we focus too much on those fingers right in front of us instead of looking past and seeing those 10 fingers and or four, eight depending on how many you're looking at right so like i that perspective is just that's the thing that i love about how you word everything because it's not just about sports it's not just about uh, you know, mental training. It's like it's life. And that's really what mental training is, is just how you're going to approach life. And yeah, because you can't you can't segregate it out. It's there's no I, I the first thing I do usually when I go work with the sports team is I tell them that their sport is stupid. <laughs> people to people today are going to chase each other around a, a, a leather ball. My it's, favorite thing like to do egg. is yeah, is to is to go hit a tiny little white ball around a grass field. Like that's stupid. I love it. I can mm-hmm. find joy in it. It's fun. There's mastery in it. But like, let's keep it in perspective that what we're doing is really silly. And if we put it on a pedestal that it doesn't belong on, it's going to cause a lot of other things in our life to get really out of whack. And those are the things that are going to matter on our deathbed. That's 
And that's the honest to God truth, whether people want to hear it or not. That is a fact. Oh yeah. I mean, read 30 lessons for living from, you know, they interviewed, I think around 10,000 people that were at the, in the final stages of their life and asked them these questions and aggregated the answers. And our deathbed has a, a way, like we're really bad as humans about thinking that we're going to live forever, acting like we're going to live forever and never. And, and, and we hate talking about death. We never want to think about that. And but the truth is that if we would live life through a death lens, it actually will allow us to truly live instead of just exist and exist in ways that don't even really make sense. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day when it comes to um, drugs, alcohol, and things like that. And, and I think that part of the desire is that we know that there's something more out there. We know that there's these feelings out there, that there's these experiences, but we're living in a world that we weren't really meant to live in. And we are, we're existing in a way that we weren't really meant to exist. Mm -hmm. And we're so caught up in the trappings of this life but deep down inside, we know that there's so much more. When I go to a place like Iceland, I become like a little kid. I'm running through waterfalls and I'm climbing and I'm doing stuff. I'm exploring and I'm, I think we're missing those things. And so because we know that that's out there and that we're missing that, at a core level, I'm not even talking at like a social media level. Right. Like we, we, we know that there's something more out there in the world than, well, I'm going to go to work today and I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to buy this house and then I'm going to have these kids and I'm just going to, you know, I just got to keep on keeping on, you know, and we got to buy this new house and then we got to buy this new car and, you know, then, hopefully we'll be able to go on that vacation to Disney world. And, and well, again, like who says that you need this debt? Who says that you need to do it this way? Who said, you know, um, we know that there's this stuff out there that actually sets our soul on fire, that actually makes us come alive. And we substitute it for these, these short-term experiences that help us in the moment. And look, I, I, I started this off and, you know, I know we're probably getting close to the end. Um, I, I, I'm right there on that journey with people. Uh, I told you, whenever you asked me to come on here, I said, I am not sober. Um, I-
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.